Hello, and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. We're continuing our coverage of the 2023 Academy Awards. Today, we're talking to the sound team behind another film that is on the short list for the Best Sound Academy Award, Avatar, The Way of Water. If you've seen this latest installment of James Cameron's epic series, then you already know how visually dazzling it is. But it also features an absolutely incredible sound design and a stunning Dolby Atmos sound mix. Joining us today to talk about the film is four-time Academy Award-winning re-recording mixer, supervising sound editor and sound designer, Christopher Boys, supervising sound editor, Dick Bernstein, re-recording mixer, Michael Hedges, sound mixer, Julian Howarth, and returning to our show, supervising sound editor, Gwendolyn Yates, who we all know as Gwen. She was a guest very early on in our first season of the podcast. Uh, and if you don't know that much about the art and the craft of dialogue editing, that you go back and check out that conversation with Gwen. It's a deep dive into that particular part of the sound art. Uh, and it's a great episode. You'll find a link to that in our show notes. But today we're discussing the second Avatar film. And this was an epic undertaking that took almost a decade for Jim Cameron to bring to the screen. And in fact, the sound team started really early. I know that uh, Chris Boys actually started working on this film over five years ago. So that's where we started the conversation, asking Chris, what were those initial explorations into the sound design of the film? Here's Chris. We started having conversations with John Landau, and he said, I want to get you down here and, and play you some stuff and show you our, our setup down at Manhattan Beach, which was pretty impressive. This is obviously long, long before COVID. So we both went down. We screened some stuff in his new cinema. I had been talking to people that were working on building it prior to even getting involved. And then and then independently, we both read scripts. Um, you know, you go into a locked room, you give them your iPhone and all implements of writing, et cetera, et cetera. And you go in and read a script and, and kind of take in what you can. And it's, it's, um, bit of a large task because the script reads well in that it gives you a real descriptive narrative of components, but um, because it's a script, it doesn't really give you a, a map of what to start or where to start or all of that. Um, and I guess it was five years ago. I can't, I'm so bad with dates, um, but it, it likely was five years ago uh, that that all began. What's been Probably the, the biggest task for me early on and remained a challenge right until the last day really was uh, the, the dialogue coming from the Talkoon, um, which are the, uh, they are, you know, effectively marine mammals and they are, you know, are very much characters in the film and, and have a language of their own. And what, what's, fun for the audience is that they, they come to learn that, um, well, and through Loak, which is uh, one of the Sully family uh, kids, we, we, we get introduced to Piacon and, and, and Loak and Piacon figure out that they can talk and, and Loak sort of comes to understand Piacon and Piacon comes to understand Loak. And that's all sort of through this you know, sound designed language. And that was kind of my biggest challenge on the film in a design sense that started really early on. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I definitely had a, a note that I wanted to talk with you about um, about that that design challenge around the uh, <clears throat> the vocalizations of Piacon and just in general, uh, the Takoon the um, mammal race. And so, I, I you know, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. That's where you started because I'm sure, as you said, that was one of the bigger challenges for you. I, you know, I, I, for me, the character of Piacon, you know, 
was one of the main characters of the film and was a character that I became as emotionally invested in as any uh, of the Navi. And I, I know that a lot of that is due to the, you know, the reactions that I was having to, you know, to his vocalizations. So can you talk about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about what the experimental, you know, the, the, so if you started with that for five years and you said it went until the very end, tell us about like, were you, what, what, what were some of the blind alleys that you went down? What did you try that didn't work and how did you finally kind of unlock it? That was the, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, what I did initially was I put together, well, well first of all, I, I, my son, Daniel, uh, put together a, a trip for uh, myself and Lucas Miller, who also worked on the film, the three of us flew to Maui and um, had an amazing recording experience recording Humpback Whales um, that to this day, I don't, I've never heard vocalizations the way we captured them. Um, so I was pretty excited about that. And and then uh, when I mentioned that to Jim, he, he wasn't too excited about that. So, so therein lies, you know, <laughs> The beginning of a path. So what? So then I thought, okay, well, wait, 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 wait a second. Jim wasn't too excited about it because he didn't he didn't want it to be too close to actual humpback whales, or like what yeah, was? Yeah, I think or he, just, he or was just like, Jim well, doesn't get excited about stuff in general. No, 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 no. I mean, he he was at that time. He was sort of describing, you know, he he likened it to other, and I'm not going to use any of the examples, but he likened it to other characters that didn't ever speak a known human language, but became characters in film throughout history. And that, you know, I needed to think about it from that perspective. And I think really what he was saying about the humpbacks is, is he loves the species, obviously. I mean, he's, whales are a big part of his vision. But I think his, his feeling was that humpbacks tend to be um, one of the most recognizable uh, marine mammal vocalizations to all of us. And, and and they also tend to be really sing-songy. And, and all of that didn't really, in truth, didn't really lend itself to um, to creating a dialogue. And, and so what I did initially was I basically got into my sound design room at Skywalker, and for two weeks I, I pulled through every recording. I had Lucas search every corner of the planet for, um, you know, sounds that we could purchase and, 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 and license. And um, I, I poured through every single recording I could and started creating components, basically using actually at the time a, a contact, which is a native instruments uh, program. Um, Cause it, typically I'd go to my Synclavier, but I, I actually found contact to be more appropriate for what I was doing. So I just went through all these recordings and found components and created as many, literally hundreds and hundreds of vocalizations. And then, and then Dave put them in the library. But you also had this great idea that he was at PyCon, like Loak was a, a teenager and in, in, in a lonely teenager, like an outcast. And so we also, we recorded human vocals just because I actually recorded my neighbor kids just to, and I, I kind of, I, I made up a thing for them to say, or like a scenario. I didn't tell them what it was about. And uh, they made up their own language, kind of like on the spot. And we tried it, but it's always still felt too human. I mean, but it was a, it was a nice idea to kind of go to a, a, a lonely teenager. Yeah, that and that was one of the many, um, many paths that I went down that, um, we were really excited about. It. I, I, I basically I pulled Gwen into the process because I, I thought to myself, well, you know, nobody's better at dialogue than Gwen. And, and, and I said, Gwen, what if we actually record humans and I process that? And, and we also we use these wonderful recordings that Gwen made of her of her neighbors, as well as Kevin Dorman, who was actually who actually performed on the mocap. Well, I don't know the performance capture stage performed a lot of. Python, um, you know, trying to capture what what Jim was hearing, what he, he had was his head. Doing. Yeah. yeah, and 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 in the end, um, I'll try and wrap it up because it is a, it's a big thing. But in the end, Jim got a hold of this big library that I I made, and and wisely, I wasn't really thinking about. I mean, I think I was thinking about Python a little bit, but I was thinking about Tolkien in general, and I. I wisely sort of named these all with emotional components like sad, angry, rage, um, happy, uh, you know, like 
I really divided it into every emotion I could and attack, you know, where the file spoke to me a certain emotion, I would give it that name. And, and unbeknownst to me, Jim started playing with, well, I mean, I guess I knew that he was playing with that, but he, he really started to dig into that early library and get some things that were working for him. And, and so as much as anything, Piacon was a, was a collaboration really in the end between Jim and I, but I didn't really realize that for a long time because we kept thinking, no, we need to get more, we need to be more dialogue oriented. We need to work with the, the pacing and rhythm, which we did ultimately, but the pacing of rhythm of dialogue as we know it, as we understand it so that it would make sense to us. So it has a cadence. So right. And then, then when I flew down to New Zealand, I, I started playing with other components, even musical instruments and things of that nature. And I developed about three different passes and, and I played, I think the first or second pass to Jim and he goes, no, no, no. What did, what do I have in the track now? Well, he was, he had gotten used to what he had in the track now. And, and I was fine with that. I was absolutely fine with that. Um, and then just to complete it, then, you know, we, we actually then kind of went with that and I started augmenting it with other components of sounds that I'd made. And, 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 and once we got to a place where he, he felt like it was really working, then he said, you know, I think it would be fun to do something in addition to this that's based on, you know, whistles and, and things of that nature. So then I, I, which was really exciting. Now I had some feedback. We had a base to work with and I went back to my, um, room at Park Road Post then. And I, again, on contact, I found all these marine mammal whistles and then little enunciations. And I performed all these things. And, and in the, the scene that we put out for the Academy, the, the, the very first scene where we meet Piacon, you see all of that at play. And it's, I think it's really fun because you have this dialogue, but then he, when he gets excited and he's just you know, kind of not saying anything specific. He uses these whistles and, and it, it's, it's a lot of fun. The thing that I, I hear from you is that, you know, sound and the design of this character was important enough to Jim and to John Landau that they gave you the time to explore and to, you know, to experiment and, and to, to, you know, to make this work because, you know, that character is so emotional. And I, I know that it's a, a, a large part of that is due to the, to the sound design of the vocalizations. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. They gave me maybe too much time in some regards. Um, the, the biggest challenge, and this was a challenge for all of us, is just getting time with Jim. I mean, he was just sort of pulled in so many directions. And I guess it was a, a measure of confidence in what we do. He, you know, he kind of didn't have time to, to really give us the direct attention until sort of later in the final, well, once the final mix started. And, and it would have been great to sit with him long before that. And, and maybe some of these paths I would have abandoned, uh, but I definitely got my, uh, the amount of sounds made that, that didn't get used, but are cool sounds and will be used eventually is in the thousands. You guys started in Manhattan beach, uh, which is in, you know, near Los Angeles and so was that where, where the mocap was happening? And then, and then the live action, cause there's, a, you know, just a, there's a, a tremendous amount of live action, uh, with the humans that are, uh, that are on Pandora. Now, was that shot in New Zealand or what was kind of the division of things and how did you guys, at what point did you guys go to park road? Like kind of walk me through the, va the various phases of the production. It, it started, it started all of the, the planning and everything. As you, as you know, Chris built the thing at Manhattan beach. And then we built three uh, performance capture stages. There were two side by side that we could join together to make an even bigger volume that we used for the regular performance capture. And then we built, and then once we started performance capture, you know, late 2017, um, we, we started on the two volumes. And the, in that time, we were building the water tank on the third volume. And that was, again, ongoing testing to make sure that we can do performance capture underwater to make the cameras work. Is it a different, you know, it's a different light. It's infrared. Is it ultraviolet? It's all those questions that were being asked and, and we were having to answer while we were filming on the first two stages. Um, and then you were getting questions about, you know, how, how can we develop that? We had a test tank on a fourth stage just for the hell of it. I mean, why not? Um, <laughs> and it was that constant research and development to, you know, to, 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 to fine tune it because you knew 
and, and you know, in 2017, we, we, you know, we knew we were going into a water stage and this, and, and there were various problems. And it was, we were kind of um, eight months after that, we knew we'd start to film in it. So you kind of had this eight month lead in where you would, I, I remember I was like nervous as because we were building things, we were building things that were going to water tank, would it work? How would we do like communication underwater? How would they do the capture? How would we make, oh, you know, how would I make a microphone work from 30 foot under the water to break at the surface and be working? You know, all the, all those questions and, and you know, and, and, and more with all the other departments is like, how do we get that? And it was a huge collaboration from everybody. You know, there was no, there was no point where you kind of have a distinctive job at this point. Everybody overlapped, you know, even in our sound department here, everybody, like Gwen with Chris is, we all overlapped. I overlapped with Dick and with Simon Frank. And it was like a big, a huge collaboration, which was, which is, you know, massively um, satisfying, frankly, then, you know, it's, you normally get these, these corridors that you've got to stay in and when you get to overlap and collaborate a bit more it's 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 like this huge appreciation of the people you're working with what they do and how they do it you know and and then all of this is just to keep up with jim and he's just i want to do this and you kind of go okay and how long have we got and you're like oh eight months you know and and, and i can remember the first comment i got from him sorry to detract about this i remember the first comment is, is to enable performance capture on a, in water for the cameras to work, we had to cover the surface. We'll talk about this later as well with Gwen. The surface of the water is covered with like 10,000 ping pong balls, which sound horrific. Um, and, and I don't know if this is a podcast or not, but I can remember talking to Jim about it. He's like, look, we've got this. What are your expectations? You know, it, it's that grab five minutes, try and get as much information out of him as you can, and then and then you can work with it. And I, I was like, you know, what do we want? He said, look, I said, he said, all I'm worried about is not hearing the goddamn fucking balls. And that was it. <laughs> that, that was his first. He says, I, I don't want to hear those goddamn balls. And I was like, well, balls indeed, Jim. And I, and you kind of go away, like, what can we do? So, it, it, you know, it was developed from that. And then we went to the tank. Um, and then, you know, it was two years later. Then we started, we'd been filming in the tank in terms of timeline. Then we started to build, crew came up from New Zealand to meet us. So we had Tony Johnson, the production sound mixer from New Zealand, who, an incredible job who came up to join me for two weeks to kind of like to sit down to see what, what methods we've got in place. We had a lot of things that we kind of invented to kind of help on the mocha stage that, that Jim wanted to take down to New Zealand. Again, we'll, we can talk about that a bit more. Um, and so then we developed at that point when everybody started to come up, it was the, the um, 3d cameras to test those out with those are all tested. So the systems were tested in Manhattan beach. So everything was built we had a spider cam, which was an island camera that went through the actual live sets, which played back the animation of the Navi to the humans. So we could, you could have a moving eyeline. So everybody on set, you know, to make it look right. Cause that's always the thing with CGI in a, in a, in a live action shoot is eyelines tend not to look great or that you've got somebody waving about a tennis ball that doesn't quite fit in. And it was trying to make that work. You know, and, and, and again, full collaboration. It's the spider cam grips. We've got playback from um, the mocap, the, the performance capture guys, the motion builders. Um, we've got, a, you know, a, a directional speakers on the spider cam so the blue person could talk or he could talk into earpieces. So we had that. And then we also, you know, and it was making that work. And then, then it was also uh, the initial costume review of like where we were going to put radio mics in costumes, you know, and then this, how we're going to work with that. Spider, our big, uh, our big concern is is a guy. You know, it's the Tarzan thing, isn't it? A guy in a loincloth in a wide shot, and Jim wants to hear tight dialogue. What are you going to do? And at that point, and he's I always wearing a mask. And he's always he's always wearing a mask, you know. But it, you know, those masks are without, and you can build things in. But there's sometimes he's inside and he's not wearing a mask. It's like, and again, what are you going to do? And we built. So his, his radio mic and his microphone was built into his wig. So one of the dreadlocks is actually his transmitter in his, in his hairpiece. You know, we built all that piece and that kind of went in. And then once, you know, Tony and I had a couple of collaboration for two weeks, we swapped, swapped ideas. That was all built. And then I can't remember the year we went, they all went off and we packed everything in a box. And then it went to New Zealand for live action capture where they built the sets and the 3D cameras and, and, and all the spiderling to link in with what we'd done. And so went to New Zealand and then you had another two years in New Zealand, which kind of finished the, you know, the live action capture and then went straight into post. At which point I was, I was, 
and I stayed here in LA. Tony Johnson took over with his incredible crew. I mean, amazing. Um, and then, you know, and I stayed here for occasional, what we called FPR or ADR sessions over here. We'd still record and we were still doing stunt work, uh, performance capture stunt work in, in LA while they were still doing live action in New Zealand. So and again, another thing was a pipeline across the world where you could get instantaneous picture sound and you could direct backwards and forwards. You could operate Avid systems or Pro Tools systems from either end of this pipeline remotely from the other end. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm exhausted just listening to all that. It's what an, what an extraordinary achievement. And of course, you know, leave it to Jim Cameron, you know, he can never, he can never make a film uh, in a, in a simple fashion. It's gotta be groundbreaking at every, so Gwen, you know, it's, it's very rare that we have the production sound mixer with us for these uh, conversations. So uh, not to put you on the spot, but Julian's right here. How did he do? How the, how were those production tracks? It sounds like it was a very challenging setup. He was really great. I mean, the, the, the balls in, in the pool was probably the worst thing we had to deal with because there's, balls in the pool and you can't do anything about that. They, they, I remember that's the day we actually went to the set and, and I, I, I saw you and you just kind of looked at me and you went, because what are you going to do? But um, we used, I'd, I'd say we used probably 75% of all the production that was recorded. Um, we did ADR for extra stuff, extra breathing things, that kind of thing. As the CGI came in, we, we would do that. Um, a lot of this FPR, facial performance recording is that what that stands for i think it is it, it's, it's the same as like you know what does adr there's right. there's seven different uh, translations mos again yeah, is yeah. mixer out smoking mute out sound what does that know. mean exactly is that is that's that sort of like mean, is that sort of like adr for the performance capture of the face or what what exactly right. is so it's the kind of thing where they would did they he you could play jim would play them the performance that they did either with, with the balls or, or with, with some, some others weird squeaky, you know, plywood thing underneath it. And they would record the face as well as the voice. So it's kind of ADR with the face so that they can animate to the new performance if Jim likes it better. And it helps with make sync a lot easier if, if they do it right. Um, so there was a lot of that. They did a lot of that with Spider um, as he grew up because Spider started as 12 years old and then he was, 17 and he sounded very different. So they had to uh, kind of put the the, the 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 older spider into all these scenes. So a lot of his stuff was done FPR because they, they had to, they would record all his facial expressions at the same time. Um, we did do some traditional ADR, not a ton, but uh, um, some of the water stuff that Tony Johnson did on these boats where they're just screaming into these mics just that that stuff kind of had to just for major distortion and Tony did the best he could but that's again it's kind of like the balls in the pool it's kind of like a luckily we do have ADR which is a very powerful tool and we we used it and uh I mean there's also um this miraculous program that Peter Jackson's people came up with and our lead dialogue editor Marty Kwok he was one of the lead designers on it they used it on get back it's called mal m-a-l and it was really great also for overlaps, but it could take, if, if you had two people overlapped, it would it would figure out the voices and separate them. And it would keep the, the performances and there was no artifacting. And so you could have, you know, Kiri and Lovak and, 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 and you could then, you know, just pull them apart. Or if you had these ball things, it would separate the ball noise from the sound of the water and then the voice. And it was pretty remarkable we we didn't use a lot of it we used some of it mostly after we'd already done the adr and the takes changed and there was major overlaps we would do it there or if the actors sometimes the actors bless their hearts can't quite get back to that original performance there are some places i know on the um scene where kevin dorman was being piacon behind loak there was he uh the actor he, he came really close but it wasn't quite right we used um mal to pull Kevin Dorman's Piacon out from the overlap with uh, with uh, the actor, and uh, I I defy anyone to tell me 
What's what? Because it, it sounds great. I am so fascinated by this mal technology, and I, I feel like I want to do a podcast just on that. I mean, Michael, I know that you you used the mal technology quite a bit on Peter Jackson's Beatles documentary because you had these you had those mono recordings, right? You you needed to pull the separate the vocals from the music from the instrumentation, and this just it sounds just like a miraculous black box. It's totally amazing. Um, I don't want to go too much into the detail, um, but. What we what we used on on the Beatles, we first started just trying to separate the vocals. Peter was um, the Beatles had a, a strange habit of playing loud music when they wanted to have a quiet conversation. Um, so Peter discovered that we could we could somehow clean this up. And I'm, and when we've all heard karaoke versions of these things, but Mal took it to the next level, and we we were able to separate dialogue. Um, not only dialogue, we were able to separate all of the, the Beatles and uh, then we got into music separation. So, you know, what we what we ended up using, I, I, I guess, on um, on Avatar was a simpler form in, in reality. And I think a podcast on it would be fantastic. But um, to be able to get separation where you, you cannot tell the difference of quality between um, the characters and, and it certainly is a, a groundbreaking tool um, for the future. It's, it's something fantastic. Before we move on from uh, dialogue and performance, there were just a couple things that, that, that kind of stood out for me. You know, Gwen, you mentioned um, having these child, you know, kid actors and obviously with a multi-year production process, you got some of those kids that are going to hit puberty. So I, I presume that you, you grabbed some ADR early on. That was around 2019. I went down and did some sessions with the only person I didn't do sessions with was Spider, and I think it's because he knew that he had to be FPR just because he was physically so different as well. I mean, at least he like took at least she was always a little in blue and, and Loak, and then um, um, Nateum was older to begin with, I think. So he probably I don't know, Julian, you can help me. I don't know if Nateum changed that much because he was already he didn't change that much. The yeah. changes for me that were most remarkable was Jack in his voice. He grew three foot out and up and his voice completely changed um trinity was a big change and then bailey was also a, a, quite a change i think it, for me it was uh, jack and then and, and britain oh, played loak but i think i think it was trinity and jack were the, were the two that i just saw huge changes from because right. trinity Star was six and then she was 12 so that, that is yeah. a big but at least she was always blue, so they could, you know. But she it was funny because she she lost her her cheeks, you know. She lost her 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 baby cheeks. So. That's so funny. Well, and then of course you've got you've got one character who goes in the opposite direction. You've got Sigourney Weaver, <clears throat> excuse me, playing a fifteen year old. Uh, so I, I'm just curious, and and obviously uh, we don't we don't have uh, Gary Summers today, who did a fantastic job mixing the dialogue on the film. But I'm curious, did you guys do anything to Sigourney Weaver's vocal tracks to make her sound, you know, like uh, Kiri, the 15-year-old? The to make, to, to give Sigourney full credit, she did that all by herself. When she was, when she was Kiri, I mean, actually, Zoe Saldana's talked about it as well. She would, uh, you know, uh, Sigourney would walk in, she'd be herself. And then by the time she got onto the mocap stage, she was as mopey volatile 14 year old and naturally because of that her voice pitched up a little bit it's kind of it kind of she she did that all by herself i didn't touch her amazing amazing and then of course i think one of the performances that just struck me so beautiful zoe saldana's performance as natiri just extraordinary so emotional and so how much of that was captured during the mocap and how much of that was adr or we are doing motion capture but we're also capturing emotion this was the whole bit when you said about Zoe Saldana, we're there to not just capture emotion, we're capturing emotion. And that's why we kind of try and refer it as a performance capture stage, because that's what Avatar is. It's not just, we're not just doing it, we're capturing, it's everything that they're doing, we're capturing. Um, and, and that transferal, and like you said, that performance from Zoe is outstanding. I mean, it, it floors me every time. She's incredible. And and so, and it's so natural. Um as for how much we used, you know, we, I'm there to try and protect performances as much as we can. Um, you know, ADR is a tool that, you know, I, again, as, as, as a as a production mixer, I, I don't feel ashamed about ADR. It's, it's a it's a marvelous tool, and it's a creative tool, and it's and it's everything that we do. So it's 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 a it's a balance between the two. We also um, recorded so it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so we re- I re- recorded that too. So it's you know it's it's a tool that I, that I you know we love. But the thing I think I remember about Zoe in the performance that, that get me and Dick will attest to this is, um, and I know I pipe on about it, but it's like it, it, I'm really quite proud of it. Is the song chord that Zoe sings that was recorded on stage? That was not recorded in a studio. That was that was recorded on stage at Manhattan Beach. Simon and Dick came down. We brought the track. We started to rehearse the little track. We worked, we worked on to get the pitch right with Zoe. And then she just went and hammered that whole song out on the stage. And that was it. There was no studio work without, you know, and, and that's, you know, for those kind of things, we, we work really hard to protect that performance. Amazing. Dick, you've been so patient. I want to bring you into the conversation here. Uh, it, so- Dick, I know that that you work uh, you worked really closely with the composer Simon Franklin, and and obviously, um, you know, we uh, James Horner did the score for the original film and did such a, a beautiful job on it. Tragically, he passed away before Avatar Two went into production, uh, so Simon stepped in. Uh, can you talk about your process collaborating with Simon? And obviously, you know, as Julian just told us, there was a certain amount of pre recording that happened, um, and and that process of integrating the score into the sound design? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to reunite with my buds here. It's, uh, it's always good to see their faces. Um, yeah, James's death left a huge hole uh, in our team. Uh, Simon was Simon and Simon Rhodes, our uh, scoring mixer. Uh, other people were, were part of James's team. And after we had already started uh having meetings with Disney about the world of Avatar uh, in Disney World in Florida. And uh, after James's death, uh, Simon Franklin continued and completed the world of Avatar. And I was uh, lucky enough to be able to help out on that. And part of it was that since we had been working in that Avatar world, uh, we got Simon got tapped to do the onset music, the songs, uh, some dancing and some rituals uh, for the performance capture. So uh, Julian ran the playback and we were there and we were also part of a team that they called it the culture team, which was kind of putting our heads together to uh, work on what an indigenous culture should look like. And uh, Simon invented some musical instruments uh, that then got 3D printed. And that was, uh, I guess we started doing that in about 2018. The, the, the Disney stuff uh, for Avatar World was 2016. Uh, and then eventually Simon got tapped to do the final score. And uh, we got moved down to New Zealand. He got there in January of last, of, yeah, last year now. And uh, I got there in April. And various other members of the team came and left. Stephen Baker, orchestrator. Um, Darren Hall, music editor, um, Darren uh, Graham, Graham Foote, another orchestrator. And, uh, and Simon Rhodes came down for months and uh, I got to meet Hedges. And we kind of worked in isolation uh, at that point because of COVID stuff. And the score was being developed and then everything came together uh, on the mixing stage. That's when finally we all caught up with each other and uh, had to deal with the collision of worlds. And it became apparent within the first couple of weeks that we were all going to have to set aside everything and work together and support each other and become a coherent, cohesive whole because we were fighting this looming deadline and there was so much to do and so many hours and kind of relentless concentration. And uh, I th- we really had to become unlike any picture I've ever worked on a a team. And uh, we had this whiteboard out in the hall and every day we would see the the days ticking off and uh, get our meals together. And uh, yeah, that was your job when, so it was a Jim Cameron sculpted the whole second by second, the sound of the movie. And uh, certainly, uh, he had his fingers in the music deeply. Everything had to go through him before it got to the stage. And, uh, you know, we all compromised, and we all gave way, and we all worked together and took our turns. And uh, 
we've got a product that really coheres and is transparent enough that you can hear what's going on. For sure. And uh, one of the things that I noticed, I've, I've seen the movie twice. And the first time, um, Gwen, I actually saw you. I, the first time I saw the movie was at the Academy Museum in L.A., where I got to see it in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. And you you were part of the conversation, uh, post-screening conversation. I just basically spoke for Chris Boys because it was an effects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You did a great job. Okay. But one of the things that stood out for me both the times that I've watched the film is just the astonishing, astonishing to me, just the clarity of the track. There's so much going on visually. Uh, and I feel like the sound is taking a very specific approach and almost leading my attention through this crazy visual world. And I, I, I have a, I, I feel like the, you know, in the mix, the decisions about what you guys chose to focus on is almost, it's almost more important what you didn't put in the mix, because I feel like it's very clear. You're taking us through it very, very specifically. Uh, and I feel like this, this mix was probably a big exercise in subtraction. So I'd love to, you know, Chris and, and Mike for you to talk about that. And, and 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 that approach to the just this amazing clarity of this track. I believe it was maybe coined on Terminator, but it was a, a term that Jim has used in the past, which we've all sort of, uh, you know, recanted many times. And that that is, you know, clarity is king. And, um, you know, that that really was the edict that we worked under. And the, the problem with getting clarity or transparency, and, and, and you really kind of hit it on the head, Glenn, it, 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 it's all of the departments, music, dialogue with crowds and it's, it, all of this. And then obviously the sound effects world with you know backgrounds, Foley, and then what we call hard effects, which are the more traditional sound effects. We deliver a palette that it really can't play. All of that just can't play. And um, in fact, I mean, it can't play together. It can't play all at once. It can't play all at once without it being just a collision of of ideas and components. The problem the problem is that that, that you can't say, okay, well, if if they can't all play together, then just pick the pieces that w will play. Well, as Dick pointed out you pick those pieces second by second or frame by frame. And, and um, so in order to get a transparent track, which is what a film like Avatar desperately needs, you, it, it's, it's exactly what you said, Glenn, it's subtraction. It's subtraction of backgrounds. It's subtraction of Foley. It's subtraction of sound effects. But in the music department, which Mike and Dick can speak to, it's, it's listening to a cue and saying, great. Well, these beating drums are happening while we have gunfire on screen. We, we have to support that gunfire. Therefore the drums are not going to play. And, and, and that's um, kind of, you know, like known to us as mixers, but very few directors, a lot of times, I, a lot of times directors just won't sort of be willing to, to take apart their music to support their gunfire, for instance. And, and, um, Jim has no fear of doing that. And, and that's a good thing. It, it's hard on all of us because, you know, we're, we're taking away these components that we would really play in and of themselves, by themselves, play amazingly well. Um, but that was the edict that we worked through. And um, in order to get there, it was frame by frame, second by second, and multiple, you know, we would go through and get it sort of working. We do a, a playback. Then we'd spend another day going through and, and cleaning and, 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 and really sort of focusing. And, and this just went on for a, a really long time. And that whiteboard just kept getting updated and updated. And, and, and in the end, Avatar visually is such a complicated image. And I think the human brain can easily take that in and enjoy it. But we, delivering the sound of Avatar, have to work against that because the human brain can look at all those beautiful visuals, but can't necessarily process a thousand different sonic notions. Really, we want to simplify it and, and get the, the sound to speak to the story that we're trying to tell. And, it, and if it's not part of the story, it doesn't belong in the track. And, and what that comes down to is, is, a, is a track that 
in many ways, it's very simplified so that we're telling the story. It's well put, Chris. I think um, the big thing for us was that Jim was so precise. And I think we've all said it, it was a long period. And Dick, you said that deadline was looming. Um, and I think that played a part on, on Jim being um, extremely detailed. He wanted to go through each department. He would start with the dialogue. He would make sure that we're hearing every line, every breath, which became so important in Avatar. Um, then we would go through the music and, and there were a huge score. There's, there's three hours of score, which um, plays magnificently. It's Simon and Dick and Darren um, worked so hard on presenting not just a score, but an emotional um, journey that we that we went on that was that was orchestrated with um, with native instruments with so many different things uh, and 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 that had to play um, against music and effects and as Chris said we would we would work work with the, the score we would listen against the dialogue then we would add in Chris's department and Jim was precise he would he would go through it choose what he wanted we would then run the reel um, and sometimes they were a traffic traffic crash you know it was uh, there, were, there were quite a few moments where we were going oh my god that didn't work and um, you know tension built in the room um, let's say um, <laughs> but again it was it was uh, a process that had to happen and we would get notes we would work through those notes and we think, oh, we're done. No, we'll watch it again. Jim will sit in his, his chair and he'll listen and he'll go, okay, we, we didn't get it quite right. We'll go back and we'll refine those moments. Um, and I think, I think to, to the, the beauty and the emotion of, of Avatar, the, the score, the sound effects, the environments, you get captivated by all of those things and you forget that every piece of water is actually created, every drumbeat is created, every vocal is created, um, and you you get captured and, and you forget all of the story that well all of the things that um, you you know that aren't real. You you get taken into Pandora, you get taken on a journey. Jim is very creative and very precise in what he wants, and uh, I think it, it it turned out pretty pretty well. Yeah, very well said. Um, I, I'd like to at, at this point, I'd love I'd love to actually kind of uh, dive into uh, a little bit of of the actual uh, the mixing process, uh, Chris and Michael, just to kind of follow up on on what you're talking about. So I, I know you mixed in New Zealand at Park Road Post, which is the facility that uh, Peter Jackson created down there. So Chris, you know, you're the sound designer, and then you also mix the effects. So were you, I, I presume that you were doing your sound design in, in Pro Tools. So when it came time to, you know, how much, how much are you mixing while you're doing sound design? And then when you get into the dubbing stage, uh, are you working on a Pro Tools control surface or are you switching to a console at that point or kind of walk us through kind of what that process is? In the sound design phase, I, I work from a traditional sort of perspective having sort of come from the uh, Ben Burton, Gary Rydstrom School of Sound Design. I, I create sounds for my for my editors to cut with. I also, um, I really celebrate the creative talents that, I had this incredible crew and I celebrate their talents. And, and so I brought in, um, you know, Dave Kratzka was doing sound design as well. And then uh, Dave Whitehead, who's worked on uh, with me since Lord of the Rings. I, I asked him to come in. So I didn't want it to just be my vision. I wanted to bring in as many ideas as possible um, because I knew the client was that demanding that I didn't want to put it all on myself, really. And and that worked in my favor because there were some things that, that Dave did that, that Jim latched on to and likewise it would, that Dave Kraska did. And likewise, Dave Whitehead just brought in this whole different way of working and actually taught me some new tricks, which I employ to this day. So... You know, that, that's the first thing is that you have to be really open to everybody's ideas when you have such a talented crew. It'd be foolish not to, to mine all of that creativity. Then we brought in Brent Burge, who was, I kind of dubbed him the effects supervisor 
because while I was doing design and, and, and then ultimately going into pre-dubs, I couldn't manage this crew. And, and Brent has this amazing ability to just dive down into details like Gwen um, that, that um, really helps keep things on focus. Uh, and he also edited Real One, which was a lot of fun as well. But so I would create sounds. Sometimes I'd cut them and then I'd give them to the editors and they go, oh, yeah, nice job, Chris. But, you know, then they would do their part. And I have no ego on it. It's like as long as we're getting down the road to a place where we can present something at gym, I was happy. Um, and then at one at, at a certain point, I needed to put down the Pro Tool, the, the, the sound design mode and uh, become a re-recording mixer. And I, and I really do see it as two different jobs. And so at that point in time, I really kind of shut down my sound design room. I mean, I kept it open, but I, I really kind of divorced myself from thinking as a sound designer and went into the pre-dubs. And, and I had, as I said, this great crew um, that, uh, you know, with, with uh, if I name everybody, I'll forget anybody. But, but you know, Dave Kraska came down, who'd been working at Manhattan Beach. Um, Matt Stutter came on board and Hay Hayden Kahlo, who, um, you know, again, Matt and Hayden and I have a long relationship down at Park Road, as well as Dave Kraska and I have a long relationship at Skywalker and Brent and then this big Foley crew. So all of that stuff is percolating with all these editors cutting all this stuff. And then I go into the pre-dub process and that's a challenging process because you have so much material and it's so good um, and you don't really have time to say, well, I don't want that. I don't want that. You kind of just have to organize it all and pre-dub it all so that you have everything available, um, which is a blessing and a curse because you arrive at the final mix with everything available. And, and you know, to some extent, you want Jim to hear everything so that he can see what the palette is that he has to play with. But but that can also be frustrating for him because it's like, well, there's too much to process. So anyway, that that was, the, the, you know, the creative process, you know, sound design, supervising the editors, pre-dubbing and then final mix. And in, in this film, I, I back on Lion King, I started moving more towards the S6. I, I was really adamantly opposed to going towards the S6 for a long time. Oh, I oh, I remember. Yeah, I know. I was thinking probably 20 plus years ago, you and I had dinner and you said, Chris, you're going to be mixing on a Pro Tools console. And I said, no way, Glenn. I'm, I love the DFC. I'm not coming off the DFC. And I still love the DFC. The truth is for sound effects. Well, look, the truth is that the Pro Tools mixing process has come a long way. In your defense, it was nowhere near as good 20 years ago as it is. Exactly. Now. Exactly right. <laughs> the other thing is this particular client, you had to be able to extract things. So you had, I mean. Yeah, that's true, Gwen. But don't forget, it was like a lot of things on this project. It was a blessing and a curse because right. Right. Um, as good as Pro Tools has become at being the, the entire, throughout the entire process. And I will say in my defense as a sound designer, I did use the Synclavier quite a bit when I was at Skywalker. But, I, you know, the process really was very Pro Tools centric. We created sounds in Pro Tools using Contact, using a Move, using the Synclavier. But then, you know, it was all edited in Pro Tools. And I, I, these days I tell my editors, hey, if you want to pan, go ahead and pan. But if you're going to pan in any given sequence, pan everything, don't just pan some things, because then I have to spend time figuring out what wasn't pan. So anyway, I, I really believe in letting the editors take it as far as they can and present it the way they want. And then I, I pre-dub from there. But um, yeah, we went through the mix on a brand new console. And I called up Mike probably two years ago and I said, Edgy, you got to get that euphonics off the stage because it's not going to be up to the job that we need it to, to, to be up to, uh, to to mix Avatar. And he's, he was just at, at the first, he was like, what? I love the, uh, the, the S5. This is from a guy that said, no, no, we've got to have an S5 to do Lord of the Rings and, and for, you know, Hobbits and all of these other things. He was, no, 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 we don't want any of that sort of Pro Tools platform. So... Yeah, I, I, 
you know, the I'll, I'll carry on a little, Chris, because the call came from Chris, and, and then John Landau comes into our suites and has a look at the S5s, and he'd obviously been talking to Chris, and he goes, no, 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 we've got to have the S6s. We've, you know, it's, it's, it's the modern way. And, and so then, then we started to talk about um, different formats of the S, S6s and, and how we could build it into the, the S for Park Road for where we want to take um, our, our platform and, and that. And, and you're right, the S6 has certainly come a long way. Um, and so we ended up refitting re, out the, the two big dub stages, the third dub stage, our near field rooms, all in S6s, um, just prior to, to Avatar hitting hitting Park Road. Very much prior, Hedgie, like by maybe a week. Yeah. We use them all. We use every single one of those. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I mean, obviously, as you guys have mentioned, there's a, a lot pulling Jim Cameron's attention. And, you know, we didn't even talk about the fact that you guys are working and mixing and pre-dubbing for weeks and weeks and weeks to, I, I presume that you didn't have final picture that whole time, that there were, that there were, Tons of effect shots coming in at the last minute. And so, how, you know, during the, especially just talking about the final mix, you know, what is Jim's approach to the final mix? Is he on stage with you every day? Does he come in for occasional playbacks? I presume he's still working with visual effects and doing his digital color grade and all of that at the same time. So how involved, I mean, I know obviously he's very involved, but what does that look like for Jim during the final mix? He had, he had two VFX reviews. He had one at 11. And then he had one at around five. And sometimes John would cover most of them, but Jim was involved with a lot of them. Uh, we were also scoring through the entire final mix. So that was happening at the same, everything was happening at the end. The one good thing about um, color grade and everything that was happening at the same time, um, Park Road has a, um, a theater, which uh, we, we Jim took over with the laser projectors and had Tashi doing color grade um like five minutes down the corridor which um the flexibility of that was fantastic because it allowed jim to come backwards and forwards jim did have two reviews a day and um so that meant that oftentimes we would get him early in the morning <laughs> but what what it meant in 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 short was that because of his kind of wetter reviews were sort of in these specific hours we end, ended up having to take a 12 o'clock lunch and i was like well this doesn't work for my crew i mean we you know we're, what we're going to work for or actually we'd break at like 11 30 and i said well this doesn't work because people come in work for two and a half hours and they have to break for lunch it, it, it just didn't work and <laughs> what i backed myself into unintentionally because i'm not an early morning person Is was we, we lived on a eight o'clock roll, but that didn't, mean, you know, so we started working at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, but that didn't mean that we finished any earlier. Uh, and, and, and in some ways, you know, so we got this sort of attention from Jim in the morning, attention from Jim in the afternoon. And then sometimes he would leave us with work that we could do into the evening, or sometimes he would return in the evening. Um, and then when things got really intense was when he finally finished all his visual effects reviews. And then he had a hundred percent of his time to put on us. And yeah, it got, it got, um, you know, because obviously when, when Jim's on the stage, you know, it, it, it's not our time to work. It's our time to work for him. Yeah. And, and certainly he doesn't want to sit there and watch you noodle on stuff for quite some time. No, I mean, sometimes he would give us a note and, 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 you know, it's hard for a director to know how complicated a, a note may or may not be. And, and so, you know, you would try to do it as quickly as possible. But, but if he thought it was a simple note, it might have been a simple note, but sometimes it might be a complicated note. So, yeah, it, it was, um, you know, like we were mixing hard and fast from eight in the morning till sometimes nine finished, at yeah. night. And, yeah. and that was seven days a week uh, for months One on thing end. What was good about him being on the stage is he didn't want to look at ugly picture. He didn't want any watermarks. He didn't want any burning. He wanted the picture. And so I think for the first time ever in my life, we had a completely anything that was done. It, it, it was it was gorgeous. Um, the last scene that was was finished was the train crash in the very first reel. And 
in some ways, looking back on it, it was kind of hilarious because he knew exactly where all these things happened, but it wasn't in the Patriots. And then I'd go two frames, that's where the explosion is. And so we were mixing to nothing. And then the picture would come in and he was right. There was a couple of times, wasn't there, Glenn, Gwen, where we, um, Jim would say, put the explosion here and I'll talk to Weta and make sure they put the explosion there as well. And we're like, okay. I mean, for us, we live and, and die by sync. We're just kind of okay. Uh, and, and as Gwen said, it would, it would work out because Jim, he knew exactly where it was almost by the frame. And, and he also had the power to adjust it if need be. But I have to say there was, you know, while every day we had picture changes, the picture changes were not massive. They were a frame here, there, frame there. And, um, and, and and also outside of there was a couple of scenes like the the train scene in real one that remained what we call previs for a long time. Um, we still had to work to those and then wait for them to become final. But for the most part, we had really good picture. This wasn't a situation where we were working to um, bad picture or dealing with massive changes. That that was not really our challenge. Wouldn't you agree? It also helped. When he did the color timing and the visual effects reviews downstairs, he had our track with it. So he was always watching them. They weren't separate for once we had a reel or a scene mixed, he would he listened to it in that other theater. So congratulations. Avatar Way of Water has made the short list uh, for the Academy Award for Best Sound. Uh, one of the 10 pictures that has made the short list. I know the Bake Off is coming this weekend. Tell me about the tell me about the reel. What what reel did you put together? To, to show uh, uh, at the at the Academy Bake Off this weekend, the Bake Off reel is 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 a is a piece that covers um, a beautiful part of where we think uh, where we get to know um, Piacon and Loak and and we see their first communication and we see such a such a, a beauty of 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 what the score can do and what the sound effects can do and it takes you on that journey of. Of where the way of water um, is, is it takes us all. I think it's a it's a really good representation of of everything that we created um, that Jim wanted to play. That I think will impress uh, upon the viewer the importance of storytelling by sound. And um, it's a beautiful piece. I, I think it's fantastic. In the old days, you got to put together like a ten minute reel of just clips from the movie that showcase sound, but, uh, but it's different now, right? You have to like, you, it's, it's, it's one continuous 10 minute sequence, right? It is a continuous 10 minute sequence. And, and in the old days, it was a challenge to pick your, your favorite moments that you felt demonstrated the sound in the new days. It's a challenge to pick a sequence that you can't touch that, that you feel, you know, best demonstrates what, what, what we did. And, and it was a big debate among us. I mean, Gwen sort of picked this section and, and I was like, Oh, don't, but don't go any further. And I, well, really you have to play that, you know, like it, you know, you have to make compromises and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Hedgie and Gwen, but I believe the scene and, and, and Julian, the, the scene opens with the, what we call the Akula attack. No, 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 no. It starts with the boys on the waves. They go oh, it starts with, oh, right. It of, starts of with the boys on the waves, but it includes the Akula attack, which is a very violent sequence. Of, but it helps that sharks don't have vocal cords or shark-like creatures, so the creature can't scream because he has no vocal cords, which helps with the violence. And then it goes to, as Hedgie described, it goes to, you know, somehow Loak survives this, this incredible uh, attack by the Akula and he wakes up on a rock, or so we think. That's one of my favorite sound design moments in the movie because he's underwater, he's you know he's running out of air, and then you bring the heartbeats in, and it actually the track gets it's so violent, but the track gets really quiet at that point, and it's just you know I, I, to me I I think you picked well. I, that's a beautiful sequence. Well, what it does by going into the heartbeat is it just focuses you in on the world, kind of at first. Loak is trying to control his heartbeat. And, and everything slows down and you become connected with that. And then he realizes this isn't going to work. I got to get out of here. And then immediately finds himself in peril. And, and I, I do love the, the, this. In fact, it's even made me jump that, you know, he wakes up on a rock or, or so you think, 
And then he's woken up or, or, or sort of realizes that it's no, this is not a rock. This is a living creature I'm on when, when uh, Pyacon's blowhole. When you know, he walks it, across the blowholes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, a fun sequence. And, and as Gwen said, it, it does let us um, demonstrate Pyacon's language and also lets us demonstrate Simon's incredible sweeping score. Plus, in that sequence, there's ADR, there's FPR, there's production, and Mal. <laughs> and you can't tell which one's which. They're all there. Amazing. Amazing. Well, obviously, you find yourselves on the Dolby podcast. So I want to ask you, uh, you know, obviously, underwater sequences are an extraordinary gift for Dolby Atmos. Uh, but I would love to ask you, what, what are your favorite, uh, you know, for, for uh, the people who are seeing it in the theaters or uh, when it finally comes to home video, if they have an Atmos system at home, what are some of the what some of your most fun Atmos moments for people to listen for? I have to say my, one of my favorites is in the rain scene on Pandora and the rain's coming down and the kids are held captive and Neytiri calls for them with her, her call. And it's like, boop, boop, and you don't know, is it a bird? Is it a person? Actually, but that, I, I love that scene. I think in, in Atmos, it's just because it, 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 it hides them and yet exposes them at the same time. Yeah, I agree. That is a good scene. It, it really lends itself to the spatiality of at, the Atmos format. And what I've always found with Atmos is that um, you, the, the more simplistic scenes lend themselves better because you can sort of pull the sounds apart and, and let the audience experience them from different directions. I, I would also say, in addition, I think, I think of real 12, but it's, it's the, uh, it's basically the attack on, um, the, when the, the, uh, when Jake and, and family and the Metakaina tribe attack, uh, the sea dragon to save their children. Um, we employ Atmos for things like wings and, uh, you know, different components that are happening around us. And, and I think that's a real celebration of the format in that sequence as well. One of my favorites is, is real one when, you know, the, the, you're, you're getting introduced back into the land of Pandora and you've got at the beginning, you've got all of the bird, all of the, the, the calls, all of the, the wildlife of Pandora, which, which invites you back into Pandora, which I think is really important to, you know, set the scene, set the tones, all of that sort of thing. And as Chris said, the simplicity of that is, is something that Atmos does really well. Um, but then again, later in that sequence, when you you know you have date night and you're flying all through the beauty beauty of Pandora, the music sweeping and and I was able to you know manipulate it all around us was fantastic. And then the spaceships arrive, and my God, they arrive, um, and that's the power of Atmos as well. Yeah, that was a that that was a, a moment that I I, I I second your opinion there, Hedgy. There's a, a when. We've we've been we've met the spaceships up in space and we're sort of looking down and then the ship comes ripping through from the right surround. And, and that's a big Atmos moment and and meant to really kind of sell the raw power of this huge vessel coming down into the atmosphere. I, I love that moment. Yeah, I, I love I, I love that because I, I can remember Jim talking about it when we were filming it. And, and he wanted, and it was about that huge sound of a rocket. And he said, and it goes to the end where the sound is actually sounds like it's distorted, but that's, it's that cackle. And, 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 and that sound of force and violence. And, and, and it's not, you know, it's not violent, but it's just like, it's immense. And I remember him talking about it so, you know, a long time before that. It's that thing that's, it's, it's in his mind all the way through. And then, and then, and then, and then Chris and Mike and, and Gwen and everybody at, at Park Road, like actually, put that to life and they put that in the screen and, and you hear it. And from hearing him talking to it to then hearing it actually in the final mix is, is kind of like, okay, yeah, wow. You know, you, you've really absolutely nailed it. Tick the box full hundred percent. It's like, that's it. It's amazing. One, one thing I'd like to add there probably, and Julian, <clears throat> you've just, you've just brought it back is that Jim is a master storyteller. And when during the mix, there were moments when he just sat there and he just explained in detail the whole concept of the scene or what he was trying to portray, and he is so good at that. It 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 really enlightens you to to understand 
why he wants the clarity. He will constantly say, you can only concentrate on two things at once. And, and for him, the story is told by what you're hearing and what you're seeing, but you need that clarity. And so he explains it so well that we as re-recording mixers understand more of what his movie is. We can make our own movie, but that's not the point. We're making Jim Cameron's movie. And I think um, to have that clarity from, from a master storyteller and a master filmmaker such as Jim Cameron, um, I think was invaluable to where we ended up. Thank you, Chris. Dick, Michael, Julian, and Gwen for joining us today. And a special thanks to our friends at Skywalker Sound who helped us put this conversation together. Considering how the film has already grossed almost $2 billion at the box office, you might have already seen Avatar, The Way of Water, but if you haven't, I cannot recommend it highly enough, either for the first time or for a repeat viewing. And if you have the chance to see it in a Dolby Cinema, in Dolby Vision, and Dolby Atmos, I highly suggest that you do that. It's simply an incredible experience. We'll have a link to the film, as always, in our show notes. And if you haven't already, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. It's awards season, and we will have more episodes just like this one coming up, including another in just a few days, focusing on the film Babylon. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thank you again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon, and production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks for listening.